Good morning. I want to thank our sponsors for this morning's class, Gail Shiowitz, in commemoration of the Yurtzeit of her beloved father, Zalman Svi ben Avram, whose neshama should have an aliyah. I want to begin this morning with a very simple question, and that is, what are you people doing here? Isn't anyone making Pesach? I was really counting on nobody showing up today. A lot to do for the Shabbos HaGadot Russia. So we'll see how far we get, because uh, every minute right now is precious. This week we have the privilege of reading Parshas Tzav, continuing the theme we began last Shabbos, the third book of the Torah, Torah's Kohanim, the laws of the sacrifices, the guide for the priests who bring them. And again, I reiterate what we spoke about last week. I can't emphasize strongly enough that the symbolism and the themes, though one reads, including our Parsha, it seems so esoteric, so archaic, so inaccessible. The themes and the symbolism is as alive and well and relevant and resonant for us as much as ever. The notion of conquering the animal impulse within us, the idea of directing the fats, the blood, the basics, the flour, the indulgencies, the wine, that it all is directed towards the service of Hashem remains as relevant. And it's against that backdrop that we study all of these, that we study all of these passages. Our parsha begins, parsha Tzav begins, not with one of the laws of the sacrifices, but in fact... What happens the morning after the sacrifice? In order for the altar to be used again, what needs to happen? You got to take out the trash. You got to take out the garbage. It begins with the Trumas Hadeshen. It begins with the law of the Korban Ola. We're going to come back to this. It stays in the flame the whole night. And because it's on the flame the whole night, what's left in the morning? A beautiful pile of ash. So what does the coin do in the morning? Now, if I was told to take out the garbage, and by the way, it's messy, it's dirty, there's ash, there's dust, there's a hole in the garbage bag, it's leaking. So I wouldn't put on my finest suit. I wouldn't say, let me first put on my tie. I change out of my fine clothing into more casual clothing in order to take out the garbage. But what does the Kohen do? The exact opposite. The Kohen literally gets dressed up to take out the garbage. Kohen cleans the altar and the burnt ash. He puts on two of the four big day kahuna, the priestly garments. And then he does something very unusual. Where does he put this garbage? Visamo Eitzalam is I don't know, if I take the garbage out, I don't leave it at the front door. I get in a lot of trouble if I leave it at the front door. If you take the garbage out, take it all the way out. Make your way to the garbage can. Take the garbage can all the way to the curb. But what does the Kohen do? He puts on Big Day Kahuna, two of the four garments, the priestly garments. For some reason, he puts it on the floor of the courtyard on the east of the ramp that leads to the top of the Mizbeach. And the question is, why? And then, then he changes his clothing. So if he's going to change his clothing already, why doesn't he wear something more comfortable, casual, something that can get dirty? He wears big day kahuna, two of the garments, and then he changes out of that to put on the rest of the garments. And then, then he finishes taking out the garbage. So we've shared this idea before, but I share it again because it's one of my favorites, and it comes from Rav Hirsch. Says Rav Hirsch, I'm going to read to you his words. Writes Rav Hirsch. I won't read it in the German. I'll read it in the English. The true Masadeshin is an avoda itself and may only be done by a kosher Kohen and priestly vestments. 
He takes a handful of the ash and he places it deliberately, not scattered on the Mizrach, the east side next to the altar. The ash has been laid down as a remembrance of the devotion represented by the sacrifices of the past day to God and to His Holy Torah. It would give the idea as the introduction to the service of the day that today brings no new mission. It has only to carry out ever afresh the mission that yesterday too was to accomplish. The very last Jewish grandchild stands there before God with the same mission of life that his first ancestors bore. And every day adds to all its solution of the task given to all the generations of the house of Israel. A magnificent idea of Rav Hirsch, That the reason the Kohen gets dressed up is this is a holy act. It's not a mundane act. We're not just emptying the Mizbeach to make room for today. But that which represents yesterday itself is holy, is sacred, is consecrated. And we interact and we deal with it as such. The Kohen gets dressed up and one takes great care. And why do you put it down right next to the ramp going up to the Mizbeach before you take it out? Says Rafersh, because the Kohen is making a statement. And what is that statement? That before I bring my sacrifice of today, I remember that sacrifices were made yesterday. I don't bring my sacrifice today as if I'm the first to ever have to make a sacrifice. As if I have appeared something from nothing. But rather I recognize that I am built on that which comes before me. I am that which comes before me. I am the beneficiary of the sacrifices that come before me. This Shabbos, Shabbos Agodol, we're going to talk about identity. We live in a world of identity crisis and identity confusion and stolen identity, and it's time to recover our identity. Who are we? Who we really are? That's the topic for this Shabbos. So there's an uh, incredible work on identity um, by a therapist, by a psychologist, and he talks about vertical identity versus horizontal identity. My cousin, Rabbi David Beshevkin, told me about this book. What is, what is vertical identity? Vertical identity is what shapes your identity is where you come from, your ancestors. Versus horizontal identity is the influence on your identity from your peers, from those who are with you. So the, the first avoda of the day, and it's part of the avoda, right? You wouldn't just say, well, the first major task that I do each day, it's part of my mission, is I take out the garbage. No, you'd say, I take out the garbage because my house, I don't want it to smell. Then I start doing the important things of the day. But in the base of Mikdash and the Mishkan, it was different. Taking out the garbage was the first important. It was part of the Avoda. The Kohen got dressed up. Why? I affirm my horizontal identity. I put the trash next to the altar so when the next person walks up that ramp, they see the ash sitting there and they remember that my sacrifices don't come out of nowhere. They're built on the sacrifice of yesterday. There's an additional reason. The Bali Musa, the Bali Machshava all point out. Because ultimately, ultimately, what taking out the garbage the first thing in the morning reminds me to do is to live life with a sense of a sense of humility. This Kohen is about to perform on the big stage. The Mishkan is the centerpiece, the big stage of the Jewish people. There's no bigger platform. There's no greater stage. There's no more shining spotlight than the service in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Mishkan. They served in 24 rotations. And when was that Cohen's week to serve? They made the big time. That was it. It could easily go to the Cohen's head. They, had the, they won the genetic lottery to be born a Cohen. 
they qualify and they're eligible to serve as a Kohen. They get to enter parts of the Mishkan that non-Kohanim are not allowed to enter. They engage in activities that non-Kohanim are not allowed to do that can easily inflate the ego. What is the very first avoda? Because it too is part of avoda. Don't forget to take out the garbage. I've told the story a million times. When I was privileged to be invited to the White House a few times for meetings, and one of them was the president himself, and I come out of that White House and I call my wife, of course, the first one, tell her all what it's like. It's incredible in the Oval Office, having met the president. She listens and listens and listens, and then she says, I think it must have been a Wednesday, because she said... All right, that's nice. Listen, when you come home late tonight, don't forget to take out tomorrow's garbage day. Don't forget to take out the garbage. You can always count on a good Rebetzin to keep you humble. And I don't say that sarcastically. I mean that seriously. It's very important. And actually, the Pesach edition of Mishpacha, apparently they're doing a, a story about shuls and shul rabbis, so they, they sent me a list of questions. And they asked, I'll give you a little spoiler alert, in the Pesach edition of Mishpacha magazine. So they asked me, what is the secret weapon of a rabbi? What's so important for a good rabbi? So I answered, maybe I shouldn't tell you, keep it up. I answered, a good rebbitzin. And, and I meant that. So I, I don't say it uh, sarcastically, that you need to depend on. All people who are in positions where easily things can go to their head need to surround themselves with those who keep them humble. So what did the Kohen do? The first avoda, and the Bali Musa point out, this is our first avoda every day. Our first avoda is not necessarily to take out the garbage, but our first avoda is an act of humility, to remember where we come from, to remember who we are, to remember our limitations, and to live life with a sense of, with a sense of humility. That's what davening is. Davening is an exercise in humility. If davening, we spoke last week, takes the place of the korbanos, the Navi says, then davening is an exercise in humility. When I stand before the Almighty and I say, I am nothing without you, I utterly depend and rely on you, I can't achieve or accomplish anything without you, I need your help for health and livelihood and justice and redemption and so on, it's an exercise in humility. Each time I take three steps and I'm in the presence of the Almighty and I remember my my uh, life in contrast to his, and I, I submit to him, it is an exercise in humility. I'm taking out the trash in my heart. I'm taking out the trash in my head. I'm remembering to be humble. And in fact, Refersh writes, all this I've told you before, but what I'll tell you now is new, that Refersh writes, this is really um, critical to the very first carbon that's uh, represented in our parsha, our parsha goes through zos Torah ola. The ola is an elevation offering, and then it's going to get to. I'll give you the summary of the parsha right now. Then we get to the korban mincha, the meal offering, and then we get to the korban chatas, which is the sin offering, and then we get to the korban asham, which is the guilt offering, and then the parsha talks about the miluam, the offerings that were given as part of the inauguration of the mishkan, and the shlamim, the uh, peace offering, and the korban toda the special offering that was made when one survived a life-threatening situation and they want to express gratitude. Each of these karbanos represents and reflects the spectrum of human behavior externally and a failure or a positive expression of an internal thought or intention. So it reflects the external mistakes we've made or the internal positive gesture, desire to draw close. Refresh writes that generally the ola 
comes from a person's awareness that he's in need of making greater strides towards coming close to the Ribbon Shalom. It's the awareness that one has failed to perform certain duties and that we won't neglect them again in the future. But why specifically is the Ola offered? If a Korban re- represents or is, is correlated with certain behaviors, what behavior precipitates, what behavior generates the obligation of a Korban Ola? So each Korban has different rules. The, uh, for example, the owner doesn't eat the Korban Chatas, but who does? The Kohen. The Kohen partake of the delicious barbecue, they eat the Chatas. The, um, the owner eats the majority of the meat of a Korban Shlamim, like a carbon toda, the owner gets to eat. I'll, I'll fast forward, I'll tell you beautiful mitziv that I'm also very fond of sharing. If you come to this Parsha class often enough, you're just going to hear me say the same things every year. So the mitziv has a beautiful thing. He says the carbon toda is classified as a shlamim. Normally a carbon shlamim, the owner who's offered the sacrifice, has two days and a night to eat it. 48 hours. As an, as a, not 48 hours, but two days and a night. A long period of time. Korban Toda has one day and a night. Why? If it's in the category of a shlomim, why is it given a narrower window to be able to eat it? The Nitziv has a magnificent insight. Says the Nitziv. Because what happens? You're not allowed to leave over any of the meat. We're going to get to that. That's called nosar. There's a prohibition to leave over anything that was supposed to be eaten or, or burned or consumed. So what's going to happen if you have this whole animal that has to be eaten? and you don't have a large window to eat it, you only have a shorter window, what do you need to do in order to ensure that it's all eaten? What do you have to do? You gotta share. You have to invite other people. Why is that important specifically here, says the Mitziv? Because real gratitude is not something that you offer privately or modestly or in hiding. Real gratitude is something you wanna shout from the rooftops. You wanna tell the world. So the Korban Toda is given a smaller window to which to eat it because that forces the owner to invite friends, family in order to partake so that they too become aware and learn of the goodness and the graciousness of the Ribbon Shalom for which the person feels such a sense of gratitude. A Sudas Hoda'a. We sponsor a Kiddush. We make a Sudas Hoda'a. We tell people. Some people say, I'm private. I don't need people to know. Adarabah. They should know. The Gemara says if someone falls sick, that you should dafka let people know. Why? So they can daven for you. And when you have a positive experience, you're saved, then what should you do? Shout it from the rooftop so people learn. There's a God in the world and He has an outstretched hand and He has a guiding hand. And let them feel connected with your story and your miracle and see Hashem in their own lives. What do we do today? We don't have a Korban Toda. What today takes the place of the Korban Toda? Bench Gomel. We bench Gomel. The four categories of people for whom we bench Gomel correlate with the Korban Toda. Someone was in a life-threatening situation. Someone asked me the other day, they were nearby the bridge in Miami that collapsed. They wanted to know if they bench Gomel. They weren't nearby like they ran and escaped its collapse. They were nearby. So I said, say a parak of Tehillim, sponsor a Kiddush, donate the Tzedakah, but you don't bench Gomel. If, if you... You get that question a lot. I was almost in a car accident. You don't bench Goma for that. If Khalila, you were in a car accident and you was threatening and you survived, you bench Goma. If you're almost in, you don't bench Goma for. So the benching of Goma, what do you get up on the bima? You say it in front of a minion. 
men or women. Mishnah Bura quotes a woman from the women's section can bench Gomel during Kriya Satorah. Why? It's a public proclamation of gratitude. If you're really grateful, then you don't tell the person, look, I'm whispering, I'm grateful, don't tell anybody I told you I was grateful. Gratitude is also an exercise in humility. It's a statement. I needed you, I depended on you, I relied on you. So the Karban Toda, the Birchas HaGomel, and I think in our human interactions also, expressions of gratitude shouted from the rooftop that really reflects that there's a sincere sense of, of gratitude. So, so why is the Karban Ola offered? What does it correlate with? Right? The Chatas, the Kohanim eat, and the Bailam do not eat. And the Shlomim, the Bailam eat. In fact, the Karban Toda, the Bailam have to invite others to eat with them. What's the law of the Ola? The Chatas goes to the Kohanim, no one else can eat it. The Shlomim, even the owners can eat, anyone can eat. What's the halacha of the Korban Ola? Korban Ola sits on the altar and it burns through the night. This is the psukim we just read at the beginning of the Pasha. It totally burns to ash. The Medrash Vayikar Rabbah sees in the word Ola, the word Ola itself includes what the shortcoming, what the misgiving, what the indiscretion was that obligated the Ola. What does the word Ola mean? Aliyah. What does it mean? To rise up, to go up. Our rabbis understood who brings a korban ola? Someone who feels more elevated than others. Somebody whose ego is inflated. Someone who sees themselves as superior, as higher, as greater, as more important. The korban ola is the korban that corresponds with arrogance. And the Medrash comments that the prescription to burn it entirely on the altar is an allusion to the punishment for those who are arrogant or haughty. Listen to the words of the, Mish- of the Medrash. It's in the seventh parak of Vayikra Rabbah. Whoever acts arrogantly before the Almighty is punished only by fire. That the worst places in Gehenna are reserved for people who lived life with a sense of arrogance and haughtiness. Because if you're arrogant and haughty, you can't discover the Ribbon Shalom. There's no room for God and arrogant people in this world. And arrogant people can never learn from other people. And they can never experience real relationships with other people. And it's really all about them. Gemara says that an arrogant person is like an idolater. Because you're really worshipping yourself. Everything you do, every decision, every behavior, every action is all about your ego and your honor. The arrogant, haughty person could feel high in this world, but they're going to go to the lowest place in the next world. And the Medrash says that's why the Karban Ola is offered and entirely consumed on the fire because the person who brings that Karban, I guess the person who failed to bring that Karban, but should have, lived life as Ola. They thought they were greater, higher, superior, and they will go to the lowest place and be burned in the greatest fire. I have a friend who I grew up with in Tinek, New Jersey, lives in Alon Shvut today, Rabbi David Silverberg. He authors beautiful Divrei Torah on the virtual based Medrash website, VBM of Gush Etzion. So he suggests that perhaps Chazal understood the connection to arrogance, not only from the etymology of the name Ola, but from the Korban, but from the law, the Halacha itself too. Because when it comes to most character traits, really, one should follow the golden mean, what the Rambam calls the golden mean. That there needs to be a little bit, not to be extreme in any direction, the golden mean, moderation. A moderate amount We've shared many times. That's why character traits are called in Hebrew midos. A mida is a measure. Because the Orchos Tzadikim writes, every character trait is like an ingredient that belongs in the recipe. The only question is, what is the mida? What's the measure? 
If you're making chicken soup, you want to put some salt and pepper, some flavorings. If it has none, be bland. It'll be lousy. So if you pour in the whole bottle of pepper, you destroy your chicken soup. If you have no pepper, it has no taste. Pepper belongs in the soup. The only question is, to what measure? So all Mido says, the Orchus Sadikim, they belong in our recipe. They belong in the soup of life. All of them have a place. Stubbornness has a place. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Am Kishay Oref is both a virtue and a liability. It's all how you use it. So character traits all belong in the recipe. It's just a question of to what measure? How much? What is the mida? What is the measure? But the Rambam, the Rambam and his Mishnah Torah and the Ramban and Igeris Ramban, they both agree that there's two character traits that have no mida. There is no measure. They don't belong in the recipe of life whatsoever. One should not engage them in a moderate fashion. One should not walk the golden mean. But one has to be extreme in not including them. What are the two qualities? Ka'as, anger. And really the two qualities are the same. And the second one is humility. Humility. The Rambam writes, humility is to be pursued not moderately, but in the extreme. Where does the Rambam get this from? He gets it from the Mishnah. The Mishnah in the fourth parak of Avos says, Ma'od, ma'od have a ruach. Be very, very, exceedingly, exceedingly humble. The Mishnah issues this, this instruction, this admonition with a special emphasis. Ma'od, ma'od. It's redundant, it's unnecessary, but it's an emphasizing. And the Rambam writes in his Perish Mishnah there on Avos, because humility, unlike other character traits, has to be in the extreme. That's why it's ma'od, ma'od. Don't be moderate. Don't be a little humble, but have a healthy self-esteem. No. Be exceedingly, exceedingly humble. And so, Rabbi Silverberg suggests, Chazal maybe look to the Korban Ola as the symbol of the complete eradication of arrogance. So, when it comes to other negative qualities, when it comes to other character traits, moderation. You deserve, or it belongs, in measure, in a little bit, person can keep some for himself, so to say. Physical delight should be enjoyed in moderation. A degree of stubbornness or obstinacy is indispensable for success. Greed is reasonable in doses, can motivate people to work and to achieve and to aspire. But arrogance, the Rambam says, has absolutely no place in the life of a Torah Jew. And so, while the Korban Chatas belongs a little bit, so the Kohanim get to eat it. And the Korban Shlomim has redeemable things, so the Bailam get to eat it. But the Korban Ola corresponds with, with arrogance, with gaiva. It needs to be entirely burnt on the altar because it needs to be entirely eradicated. The Ola is the symbol of arrogance, needs to be burned entirely because arrogance needs to be purged entirely from our lives. And now you understand, because this fits beautifully with Rav Hirsch, that if the Korban Ola comes from my sense of being Ole on other people, and so its halacha is I can't have any of it because ma'od ma'od I don't get to benefit or partake, it doesn't belong whatsoever in my repertoire, and therefore it needs to be burned through the night. Now I understand. And what's the very first thing I do the next morning? I prove that the Korban Ola had its impact. How? By taking out the garbage with humility. I take out the garbage. It's an avoda. Being humble is also an avoda. It's not only an avoda to have the center stage and the spotlight. 
It's not only an avoda when you change the world and you make headlines, but being humble is also an avoda, arguably a harder avoda. And the Sefer Vaidaber Moshe, it's a beautiful idea that you can actually see this in the words itself of the beginning of our parsha, which begins Tzavas Aram is of Lemor, Zos Torah Saola, Zos, Zos. What does the word Zos mean? This Zos Torah Saola. So the Sefer Vaidaber Moshe says, Zos is Torah Saola. What leads a person to having to bring a carbon Ola? When they arrogantly live life with a sense of Zos. This is the way it has to be. Zos. My way or the highway. I've got the answer. I'm right. Zos. The downfall of the Balgaiva. The downfall of the Hori person is that they live life with a sense of Zos. This is the way to the exclusion of all others. No compromise. No ability to listen. Never willing to give in. Zos. My way or the highway. And this is the cause of so many, so much sadness, friction in marriage and with children, breakdown with business partners, arrogance, arrogance, a life of zos. So, zos, Torah sa'ola. What is the Torah? What is the doctrine of the person who ultimately has to bring the korban ola? That they lived life with a sense of zos, arrogantly. This is it. This is the way, my way or or the highway. So the whole beginning of our parasha is all about an exercise in humility. An exercise in recognizing who we are and the limitations that we have. Okay, we already reviewed much of the parasha by going through these korbanos. Actually, we reviewed the entire parasha. So a few more comments and then we're going to end early today because I need to have a Shabbos HaGadol Joshua to give. Not that early, relax. When I say a few more comments, you all know what that means by now. Okay. So we had the law of Nosar, the prohibition of uh, leftover. In fact, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, why do we always read Parshas Tzav before Pesach? On the calendar, we have certain Parshas that are associated with different holidays. We read Parshas Tzav before Pesach. So two reasons, he said. Number one, the reference to the Korban Pesach and its centrality, which we'll mention in a moment, but also because it includes the laws of Kashering. Why are the laws of Kashering in Parshas Tzav really the most Explicit laws of kashering come later, after we have the war with Midian and we attain the spoils of the war, we take their property, you got to kasher their utensils before you can use them. So why is kashering mentioned in our parsha as well? Because of this law of Nosar. When the sacrifices were left and absorbed into Yekelim, into utensils, and they did so, the taste was absorbed into the utensil and lasted beyond the allocated time, we believe that tam ke'ikr, taste, that means that even when there's no mamashas, there's no actual food item, but the taste that is transferred has the status of the food item itself, which is the whole basis of the entire enterprise of kashras. I have a sparkling, magnificently clean pot. Why can't I cook in it if it was used for non-kosher? It's clean now. Why isn't cleaning something enough to kasher? The answer is, it may look clean, and it may appear clean, but embedded and absorbed within the walls of that utensil is taste. Heat transfers taste. And taste, tam ke'ikar, the Gemara goes through many different, tries to derive exactly from where we know that law, tam ke'ikar, daraisa, 
that biblically this notion that ta'am, taste, even when there's no actual food item, ki'ikr, it is the status of the food item. Which is why you can't use a meat pot for dairy or a dairy pot for meat or a treif pot for kosher, no matter how clean it may be because the walls still have the taste. Or you can't use a chametz pot for Pesach. So therefore our Pasha references the means of koshering and how do you kosher? Well, if taste is the issue and taste is absorbed in the wall of the pot, kebolo kachpolto, the way the taste was absorbed is the same mechanism or means through which it's purged. So if the taste was absorbed through liquid, then the taste is purged through liquid, namely, hagala. That's why we boil water and we dip in water. By having water, which is mala ababuos, it's bubbling over water, which is, which is uh, brought to a boil, a rolling boil, and then you dip the utensil in it, or you make the water go over the walls of the utensil, either way, the heat of that water, since the taste was absorbed through water, the taste is purged through water. People wonder, why? Did they have the kashering yet at the Federation? Yes. They had it already? It's coming up this coming Sunday. Okay, good. So how does it work? You got one big pot, and everybody comes and brings their chametz stick utensils and puts it in the pot, and you take it out, and voila. Well, let me ask you, if the chametz taste that was in the utensil came out of your utensil, where should it be now? In the water. How come when the next person comes to kasher... It doesn't go into their utensil. Why didn't it go right back into your utensil before you got it out of the water? How does kashering work? It's a good question, right? So that's why we're strict that we have 60 of the water opposite the utensil. So the tam, according to some, the way it works is that the tam, the taste that comes out, is nullified by the ratio of the water. And therefore, it can't go back into your utensil or subsequent one. That's an important halacha. Because if you're kashering at home, and some people do, nothing wrong with it, then you need to know that you can't put so many utensils in at once that you lose that ratio. You have to maintain the ratio of 60 to 1 when you're putting utensils in the water. What's another way it works? Is that we only kasher utensils after we've waited 24 hours. How does waiting 24 hours help? When a utensil is an eno benyomo, when the utensil is no longer within 24 hours of when it was used and it first absorbed that taste, now we believe we have a concept that the taste actually spoils. It becomes tam pogum. becomes pogum. So yes, taste tam ki'ikr. Taste is as meaningful as real food. And taste has that impact halachically. However, once 24 hours pass, the taste is considered spoiled. In fact... That's why Midoraisa, biblically speaking, biblically speaking, you could use a non-kosher utensil for kosher once you wait 24 hours. Biblically speaking, you could use a dairy utensil for meat or a meat utensil for dairy. Just wait 24 hours. It's an eno ben yomo. Whatever taste was in it previously is now considered no longer potent. And therefore you can cook. It's not a problem. Why do we wait? Why, I'm sorry, why do we have separate utensils? It's durabonon. Because the rabbi said, and I think very wisely, how are you going to keep a running clock on every fork and knife and spoon and pot and bowl and pan and know when the 24 hours, and you're going to come to use it 23 hours and 58 minutes, and that's an isodoraisa. Now you're going to eat basa b'chalav, now you're going to eat treif. So in order to draw a fence, which is guarding us from falling off the edge of the cliff of doing an isodoraisa, of eating treif, 
we say that we have separate utensils altogether. One of the Rishonim, the Ra, did not have separate utensils, in fact. But we paskin separate utensils. But that's why when you call me with a kashra shayla, what's the very first question I ask you? When you say, I used this spatula in the pan, I put the wrong cover on the pot, I found it in the dishwasher. The very first question any rabbi will ask you is, was it used within 24 hours? Or is it an Eino Ben Yomo? So we wait 24 hours before we kasher, so that by the time we're kashering, we're kashering something that's no longer biblically potent. So therefore, it's tam kalush. It's a very weak taste. So in the pot, even if you didn't have the ratio of 60, technically, that taste is not floating in the water because that is, is, a, um, is a weak taste. It's not potent. It was an eno ben yama. So if the taste was absorbed through a liquid, it's purged through liquid. If the taste is absorbed through fire, what's an example? So corned beef is absorbed through liquid. Chicken soup, absorbed through liquid. But if you made a roast, and that is the extent of my examples of through fire, I don't know, what's another example? Your barbecue. But if there's no liquid medium, so then you need fire in order to, hagal is not enough, you need what's called libun. Libun, there's libun kal and libun chamor. This is already a pre-Pesach workshop it's turned into. There's libun kal, there's a light libun, and libun chamor, which is strict. So, if the taste is absorbed through the strict fire, so that's why if you want to kasher your barbecue, then, because there's an open flame in the barbecue, you need to, you need to use a um, blowtorch on the grates. Or you could put the grates through your self-clean cycle. Self-clean achieves libun chamor. If you turn your oven on the highest setting for an hour, that's libun kal, and that kashers. But if you want to do libun chamor, the highest level, and, and it's something that demands libun chamor, then you have to put it. What about a frying pan? Is a frying pan like liquid, or is it like dry? Is that hagala, or does that need libun? So it depends how much oil you use to fry in it. If it was immersed in oil, then it's like hagala. If there was very little oil, it was just to avoid sticking then that's like in an open fire and it needs libun. Anyway, this is all alluded to in our parsha, and the Rav said these are the two reasons, the carbon Pesach, and because the laws of kashering derive from our, derive from our parsha. Um, okay. The, um, the parasha mentions, now move over to the place of the, of the Korban Pesach. It says, Vayikach Moshe es Adam vayitain al karnos hamizbeach. Where are we? We're on, uh, in Chamishi. See where we are? The art scroll. Stone Chamish on page 582. Page 582, Perches. Pasuk Tezvav. Vayigashas parachatas vayismoch Aaron v'anav is yedayim al rosh parachatas. It's talking about the carbon chatas. Vayishchat. It's a slaughter. Vayikach Moshe asadam vayitain al karnos hamizbeach savid beetzpao. Moshe took the blood. He put it on the corners, the horns of the altar around, with his finger. Vayichatas hamizbeach and he purified the altar. Besadam yatzaka yisod hamizbeach vayikachel lechaper alav. Poured the blood at the base of the altar. On this, Rabbi Salavitchik has the following comment. There's an additional reason for reading Parshas Tzav before Pesach. Like Parshas Vayikra, Parshas Tzav contains many descriptions of sacrifices. 
Most of the time, the Torah describes sacrifices offered by individuals. The Karm Pesach, as the first communal offering, represents a shift. It serves as both a herald of and a key to the redemption of the Jewish people. It emphasizes the sense of community among Klal Yisrael. So the Karbonos are mostly every man for himself, every woman for herself. You've got to cover your bases, you've got to cover your tracks, you've got to atone for your mistakes. The Karbon Pesach represents not every individual out for themselves, but community. Only two positive commandments in the Torah must be fulfilled on the pain of Karis. There's only two mitzvahs I say, two positive commandments. Karis is usually the harshest of penalties, is reserved for a negative prohibition. There's only two positive prohibitions that if one fails to fulfill them, they get Karis. What are they? Korban Pesach and Brismila. A man who's obligated to be circumcised and doesn't incurs the Karis penalty and a person who did not participate in the Korban Pesach. Said the Rav, we can understand the penalty for not observing Brismila because circumcision is the mark of identification of male Jews. Sets them apart from all of the nations. But one might ask, why the failure to offer the Paschal sacrifice covers such a severe penalty? Why? Someone was neglectful. They didn't participate in the Korban Pesach. That defines a Jew? Said the Rav, Pesach Mitzrayim serves as the identical function of, of bris milah throughout our history. It is more than a single positive commandment. It is the mark of our collective identity. We were slaves in Egypt and many Israelites did not want to leave Egypt. God commanded Moshe to tell each household to offer the Korban Pesach, the only sacrifice that needs no altar. We were commanded to place the lamb's blood on the doorpost and lintels and act akin to sprinkling the sacrificial blood on the corners of the altar. This act, which demonstrates complete obedience to God, is a sign of faith. According to Rashi, only one-fifth of the Jewish people left Egypt. Like the Korban Pesach, the journey required a leap of faith. Those who refused to offer the Paschal Lamb showed contempt for God's commandments and a lack of faith in God. These severe transgressions required a severe punishment, karis. The Korbanos are introduced in Parshas Vayikra and completed in Sav, coinciding with the with the holiday of Pesach, to emphasize this element of faith. So this notion that a communal sacrifice is part of our very identity. What the brismila is for our body, it's an identifying mark. Participating in the Korban Pesach is for our soul, is for our collective story, is for being part of the Jewish narrative. It speaks to our core identity. Now we talked about the vertical identity. That my ancestors came out of Mitzrayim and all that that implies is part of who I am and who I continue to be today. Last comment is the end of the Parsha. The end of the Parsha we have the sacrifices around the inauguration and then we have uh, at the end of the Parsha the uh, actual the consecration of the Kohanim and so forth. So the Parsha ends on page 586 Pasuk at the entrance of the Oomoed, you dwell day and night for seven days to protect Hashem's charge so that you will not die. So I commanded. Aaron and his sons carried it all out. Everything that God commanded. Everything that God had commanded. So on these words, Rabbi Soloveitchik writes the following. And it should give you some comfort as everybody prepares diligently for Pesach. Proper preparation is a necessary condition for any encounter with holiness. People quote it as an expression, Ein Kedusha Bali They quote it as a Maimar Chazal, but it's not a Maimar Chazal. But Rabbi Salavechik was very fond and emphasized this very much among his students. Ein Kedusha Bali 
There is no sanctity without preparation. For example, in the prelude to receiving the Toshan, Moshe warned the people, be ready for three days, do not go near a woman. Similarly, Aaron had to submit to a seven-day preparation period prior to the dedication of the Mishkan. And to every coin, Gadol subsequently went through a similar sequester prior to Yom Kippur. Both involved an encounter with holiness. The prohibition of muksa is centered on the need to preparation. Among the prohibitions of mukva is food that was not prepared prior for Shabbos. One does not merit, nor is one worthy of celebrating Shabbos unless one prepares for it. The Rambam writes, it's a mitzvah to wash one's face, hands, and feet in hot water in the of Shabbos. Due to the honor of Shabbos, one wraps himself in a talus and sits with his head covered, anxiously awaiting Shabbos as if he were going to greet a king. The mitzvah of Svira Saomer involves preparing for receiving the Torah. One similarly counts the years before Shemitah and Yovah's preparation. Holiness does not arrive suddenly. It comes only by invitation inherent in the act of preparation. The Rav emphasized, Ein Kedusha Beli Hachana. Whatever encounter it is that we're having in the human realm or with God, one cannot experience spirituality, holiness. You don't stumble upon it. It doesn't happen without preparation, anticipation, without effort. And that's Pesach. It's another reason that we read this before Pesach. All that work and all that effort which comes is difficult, toil, but it leads to the Kedusha of Pesach. It leads to the continuity of our children and grandchildren loving what it means to be a Jew and participating in Pesach. Ein Kedusha Beli Hachana. So may everyone's Hachanos continue to go well and go smoothly and not be backbreaking. And may the Emir Hashem yield a wonderful sense of Kedusha. We're not having class next week. There's no Parsha next Shabbos. It's Yantif. And I have a feeling we're all getting ready next. So there's no class. So let me wish everyone a Chag Kasher V'Sameach. And those who are taking leave, for the uh, summer, the spring. If you want to continue to listen to the classes, you can listen online. They're posted on Y.U. Torah or subscribe to the shul's email. We send them out. Everyone should have a Chag Kasher V'Sameach. Rabbi Maskutz's class will begin shortly.